Hello, and welcome to episode 458 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I am one of the co-founders here at ETR, and we are coming off of a worst mistake I can remember kind of week. Yes, that's right. Let me do that one more time. Yes, that's right. My name is Adam Levitan, and I played Marquez Callaway over Khalil Shakir in NFL DFS cash games week five of the 2022 season. I mean, it it's painful to even utter those words. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, Adam, don't beat yourself up. It, it was a flip. It was so close anyways. Stop it. Stop it. That's how losers talk, okay? I was all set to play Khalil Shakir, and then this Jarvis Landry news hits, and I, I just blew it. I, I just didn't think it through. I didn't have a lot of time. It was close to lock. I was scrambling it, and I just choked, you know? No excuses. I just choked. And I wouldn't consider any of this hindsight analysis. The slot role in Buffalo has been very productive. Cole Beasley, Isaiah McKenzie, when he had the job to himself. And Khalil Shakir was locked into that slot role. We knew McKenzie and Crowder were out. Jake Coomer was out too. Dawson Knox was out too. I mean, Buffalo was desperate for secondary pass catchers. Second, we don't know a ton about Khalil Shakir other than he was an interesting prospect that I know a lot of people liked coming out of Boise State. He hadn't played very much in the NFL. But still, you know, we don't know a ton about him. He was an unknown. On the other hand, we have a large sample of Marquez Callaway sucking, not earning targets. And sometimes, not all the time, sometimes unknown is better. You know, typically not in cash, but I think this is a spot where it was true, where the unknown was actually better than the known. Third, Khalil Shakir's quarterback was Josh Allen. Marquez Callaway's quarterback was Andy Dalton. I mean, my fucking God, that should be enough right there. The, the Bills are so incredibly throw heavy. The Saints can be throw heavy, but that's far from their base case. And finally, finally, the one that should have put it over the top, no brainer, I was already playing Josh Allen. And I don't think about stacking in cash very much, but if it's tight, a close decision, I should be leaning into the stack because I'm playing so many head-to-heads. I'm playing 200, 250 head-to-heads a week. It's so much more valuable to win 85% of them than 55% of them. You know, stacking is more beneficial in head-to-head versus double-up because of the non-binary outcome. So I understand the results when Shakir's way and people think that, you know, this is hindsight analysis. I really don't think it is. I, I, I'm evaluating how I played. It's really not about the results. This was an egregious mistake, regardless of how it played out. And look, everyone knows the edges are getting thinner, right? I still think that there's big edges in cash, but it's definitely thinner. And spots like this, like this is where my edge is. So that's why blowing this decision is sitting really poorly with me. I I just can't afford to make mistakes like this when trying to play at a high level and play for a lot of money. Um, You know, it was compounded a little bit by me being too low on Jeff Wilson and Brees Hall. In week five, I kind of went out of my way to get up to Alvin Kamara over them. I'm not sure that was a mistake, but it certainly didn't work out great as Wilson and Brees Brees Hall smashed. You know, Kamara smashed too, but he was 1,200 more. I also think Kamara actually could have run way hotter if not for all the Taysom Hill stuff, but that's all in the game. But anyways, you know, I went a bit IKB there. Still feel pretty good about the team uh, as a whole. You know, so given that I messed up the Callaway Shakir thing, given that I was too low on Jeff Wilson and Brees Hall, you know, feel pretty good to book a small win in cash week five.
As for tournaments in week five, <laughs> I mean, the GPP bros are tilting. I mean, absolutely tilt monkey melting their face off. They are almost broken. It, it's so fucking funny, man. Like the winning team in the Wildcat, the 3-3-3 on DraftKings, had 137.6% cumulative ownership. I mean, the freaking Millie Maker, 222,000 entries, had 128.2% cumulative ownership. I don't think he had anyone below 7%. I think that Millie Maker lineup, I literally considered everyone in the Millie Maker winning team except for Gabe Davis in cash. Like, I could have played that team in cash except I wouldn't have played Gabe Davis. I mean, just wild. And I'd say three things. First, I stand by what I said last week on the solo pod about putting your cash lineup in GPPs. If you play cash like me, it's not right. Please go back and listen to last week's solo for more on that. Second, I had seven tournament lineups and didn't cash with any. You know, even though I had Gabe on three of seven, uh, I that included an Allen double that somehow didn't cash either. And again, it's just like, Weeks like this, if you're a GPP bro, you're going to take your L's. And third, man, I, I love drinking in the GPP bro tears. It's just, it's so fucking good. I mean, people complaining about the chalk hitting. I mean, buddy, let's be honest. They're the best plays for a reason. The whole point of being a GPP bro is for those few weeks, those three, those four, those five, those seven, those 10, who knows how many weeks there'll be this season where the chalk fails. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen a lot. But to cry when the chalk hits is ridiculous. So if I was a full-blown King GPP bro, I, actually, I am a full-blown King GPP bro. I totally forgot. As your humble King GPP bro, I love to see all these people saying, oh, you, you got to start playing more chalk in tournaments. You have to change your process. Oh, don't listen to all these idiots talking about leverage and ownership in tournaments. They need to not worry about it and just go out and play the best plays. You know? I love it when people say that because when the chalk does fail, and believe me, it will, and it will a lot, my tournament teams will be competing with even fewer people than it would have been before. Oh, and by the way, like this should be self-explanatory, but I, I, people love to like make fun of cash game bros when the chalk fails, you know? This should be self-explanatory. The chalk failing is not bad for cash games. DFS is a relative game, not absolute. I could, and I have, had a higher win rate scoring 100 DraftKings points in cash than when I score 185 DraftKings points. Like, I don't care if the chalk does well or fails for my cash teams. All I care about is beating my opponents. And when the chalk fails, obviously, a lot of other people's teams are going to fail also. You know, I can slash will win even when the chalk flames out. So, yeah. Uh, Just wanted to take a quick second to shout out the winner of the the Establish the Run DraftKings Tournament $5 buy-in, three max rake-free. You can find the link each week from Steven in the ETR uh, subscriber-only Discord. Shout out to Krupp Cuts, killing it in the Discord game. But anyways, shout out to A. Shemansky26 for shipping it in week five. Had uh, Josh Allen, Steph Diggs, Gabe Davis double, George Pickens bring back. I, I do think there was some leveling here among Sharps. Um, you know, Allen, Josh Allen was only 11% in this. Steph Diggs, 8%. Gabe, 8%. Pickens, 13%. And while that's some ownership, that exact combo was not as owned as I thought it would be, not just in this tournament, but across the board. And so, you know, there's certainly a lot of leveling going on in DFS right now where more people are understanding 
how important it is to have low owned players. And so they're getting off some good players. Like if you told me that Allen 11%, Diggs 8%, Gabe 8%, I mean, I'm windmilling it in, right? Ishmanski also went somewhat chalky at running back. Kamara and Brees Hall clear cash game options, but they were only 13 and 16% owned. There were just a lot of running backs in play in week five. He also had Tyler Lockett at 11%, Cowboys defense at 18%, uh, which I would not have done, but, uh, and I think that might've been a swap, he said, if I remember correctly, uh, swapping onto the chalk at defense, I think was smart. And then Bates at 2.9%. Um, look, is this a tournament team that I would make? No, but I'd also add that he got lower ownership in this than he would have in the Millie Maker. And he's also double stacking with a bring back. He had the Camara Lockett Mini and only 102% cumulative when it was said and done ownership. So yeah, this is not a cash team because it had Gabe Davis, it had Bates, it had double with Diggs. You know, it just isn't. Um, is there more room for these type of hybrid teams winning? Maybe. It's certainly better in contests where there's a lot of leveling going on, you know? And so... I don't think there's a lot of leveling going on in like uh, the Millie Maker and stuff like that. But in some of the smaller field, higher stakes stuff, there's certainly some leveling going on. And so um, playing into more of these hybrid teams, these hybrid cash teams maybe can work. I'd have to think about that more. All right. Need to get to the listener questions, but I have to remind everyone that the NBA season starts in exactly one week, Tuesday, the 18th of October. Our draft kit is live for sale. Right now, if you have a fantasy hoops draft coming up, also, we are ready to rock with our DFS product. Dink and his team are absolutely ready to go to war. There is nothing like NBA, DFS, NBA props, NBA projections. It's hard to convey how hard it is and how much work it is to do projections and do them well every day for 20 plus teams, seven days a week for six months plus. Like, I I can't even describe it. We have multiple people all over the globe working on our projections. I think that it's so hard and it's so much work that we can generate bigger edges through this work. But yeah. So if you're interested in NBA, head to the subscribe page now. Check out all of the NBA stuff we have up. All right. Enough is enough. Let's get to everyone's favorite portion of the program, the listener questions. Producer Luke, hit the theme music. All right, question one comes from Tyler. He says, this past week, I traveled to Iceland where we visited the Icelandic Phological Museum in Reykjavik. Truly a sight to behold. Has Gender Labs LLC, aka Gender Consultants, ever studied the work of these world-renowned scientists to advance your method, to enhance your methodology? It's so wild, man. I actually went to Iceland four or five years ago. It was an awesome, awesome trip. Did probably my favorite hike ever there, or, or at least one of my favorite hikes ever, the, the Glimer Waterfall Trail. So insanely amazing. Highly recommended. Anyway, though, we were staying in a hotel uh, downtown, in downtown Reykjavik. And it's early evening, one night, you know, we're walking around, a few beers, a few laughs, just exploring. And my wife is like, you have to see this. Come over here. You have to see this. It's a cock museum. And, and I thought she was fucking with me. And, and I walk over, and it's real. The Icelandic Phological Museum houses the world's largest display of penises and penile parts. I mean, that is this museum, this business, is, that's their tagline. That's their slogan. Like, I, I'm not doing a bit here. This is 100% real. 
their collection holds well over 300 penises from more than 100 species of mammal. And I actually didn't see any human penises. I don't know if they have any, uh, but they do have a sculpture. I mean, this is so absurd. There's like a, a picture of the Icelandic handball team that won the silver medal in the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And underneath this picture of the Icelandic handball team is a sculpture. And the sculpture is, is of each one of the people on the team, each one of the players, it's of each of their cocks. I'm not kidding. It's just a glass case with roughly 14 penises, shaft only, fully erect, right? Like so insane. I mean, some are bigger than others, some are more girth. It's so crazy. But I got to say, man, Iceland, highly recommended. You know, you go to Iceland, you do the hike, you do the natural hot, hot springs, you do the Schlong Museum. I mean, easy get. Uh, question two was from a ton of people. A ton of people asked me uh, to comment or what I thought about the poker cheating scandal going on at the Hustler Casino um, out in California. So for those of you guys who don't know or those of you guys who aren't following, basically there are these very, very, very high stakes cash games. They stream them live. Uh, they take place in LA. The game is currently at the Hustler Casino. I don't want to get into all the details of the hand and the background, all that. You can find hours and hours and hours of content on that elsewhere. You know, Joey Ingram's YouTube or Doug Polk's YouTube, et cetera. But basically, the short story is the best player in the game, the biggest winner, gets called by a woman who had Jack High. And now there's this massive investigation to whether she cheated or not. And I, I have no idea, really. I, I haven't taken the time to look at it fully. And even if I did, I'm not sure that I would have a definitive take on whether it was cheating or not. All I'd say is that you guys know me. I'm the world's biggest cynic. I just can't slash don't trust anyone. I don't know really how or why I got like this or what's wrong with me, but I just always assume people are out to fuck me. Uh, people are out to cheat. People are out to steal. People are out to lie. I, I, and that's for sure heightened when gambling. You know, I, It's funny because I've actually found that in life, poker players, gamblers, like real poker players, real winners, people who are really thoughtful in gambling and, and have a ton of work ethic, like they're some of the most trustworthy and honorable people around. But there's plenty of other people around gambling that are obviously scamming or stealing, et cetera. So I'm just always constantly watching. I always am trying to make sure everything's on the up and up. I mean, you just have to. I mean, think about the math of it. Even if there's only a 5% chance someone is cheating, or if there's only a 10% chance that I'm going to get stiffed if I win in a game. Is my edge in the game big enough to overcome those relatively small probabilities that something isn't right, that someone's cheating? Probably not. Question three, I actually forgot to write down the name here on this question. I apologize, but uh, says, what's it been like taking on the entrepreneur side of starting slash maintaining ETR, the business? Ah, man, you know, it's it's been the honor of a lifetime, uh, really has. You know, there, there's two sides of it. Like, first, do I really want to deal with, you know, how things are displayed on the site and and marketing and figuring out how much stuff should cost and what people are working on and if they're working on it the right way and if I'm doing it the right way and and how should this page look and what's the most GTO ass clown YouTube face I can make? I mean, do I really want to deal with all that stuff uh, on some level? Yes, 
I think, but mostly no. You know, I, I think the back end stuff, the stuff people never see, I mean, there's just so much. You know, when I was working for Sports Network or Doylestown Intelligencer, or Metro or Roto World or any of the places where wherever I worked, you know, I always wondered like, what is it that the people, the owners or the or the people at top actually do? Like what do the business people actually do? I really couldn't figure it out. And now I know that it's hours and hours and hours of never ending, like constant issues and decisions that need to be made every day. Um, and I found that interesting. You know, I, I've learned a ton and I'm, I'm glad I'm having a different experience than I would never having run my own thing for sure. But I'd be lying if I said there isn't a part of me who sometimes longs for like the simplicity of just playing for myself. When, when I was... 22 or through 27, I didn't think about much other than waking up and, and playing poker and trying to get better at poker and trying to play my best every time I played. And, and that was it. There was certainly something relaxing about that. It's so simple. As for actual work stuff, though, as annoying and, and draining as a lot of the back end stuff is, I would not trade it for anything. I think we just want to control our own fate, make the decisions that we think bring the most value to you guys, bring the most value to you guys, period. And like everything else will work out. So I don't want to leave that up to someone else. I, I think that we know what people who are trying to win in fantasy actually need better than, than anyone. And so that's why it's important for us to run it, I think, the most. Uh, question four from Thomas Fuller. He says, kids, are they plus EV for DFS because of added motivation or negative EV for DFS because of time and sleep deprivation? I can't lie to you, Thomas. I'd say kids are negative EV for succeeding in almost anything that takes a lot of work and mental capacity. And I love my kids. They're awesome. But the idea that I could be better at anything because I have them, I just don't see it. I mean, I can't even take a fucking dump in peace in my house without one of them harassing me. You know, I'm driving them to soccer practice when showdown slates are locking. You know, it's a complete mess. As for the motivation aspect of it, maybe some people need that. You know, oh, I have kids now. I better really clamp down and start taking this seriously and start trying to, as hard as I can to win. Maybe some people need that for motivation. I, I personally don't. And I, I think that if you're not really motivated naturally to be great at something, you know, money aside, kids aside, if you're not naturally motivated to be great, it, it's going to be hard. And so people who really love something, have a passion for it, don't need to be motivated by kids or whatever. I think they'll fare, fare better in what they're doing long-term, you know, DFS or otherwise. Uh, question five from Certified. He says, do you intentionally build lineups that have late swap options? Do you ever build lineups with all early game players? For cash, I don't really think about, think about it at all. I know some people do. I, I see the case for it, but I just don't. You know, I'm just trying to make the best team, period. So yeah, maybe Jeff Wilson over Tyler Lockett in week five was better because Wilson left late swap opportunity and Lockett did it. But I liked Lockett better, period. So I played him. Now, for tournaments, it's a different story. There is so much value in being able to swap once you know how you fared at 1 p.m. and how the field fared. So yes, on certain slates, I will start with a contrarian piece or two at 1 p.m., leave the rest of the lineup open or as much of the lineup open as I can. And then if the contrarian stuff fails at 1 p.m., I go super contrarian at four o'clock. The contrarian stuff does well at 1 p.m. 
we can chalkify the rest of the lineup. That's just like one example of how you can use late swap to your advantage, not injury related. As for lineups with all early game players, yeah, I think that's fine. When I won the 250K last year, I believe I had all 1 p.m. players. I would not avoid it on purpose. And some people will say, well, Adam, why not put, if you have all 1 p.m. players, why not just put it in the 1 p.m. only slate? Well, part of the thesis or what you're saying with an all 1 p.m. lineup is that this is right. This will hit. This will be the nuts. And so therefore, we want our opponents to play guys from the 4 p.m. games. You know, less of our opponents will be on the players that we're playing. So we still want that lineup in the main slate, not the 1 p.m. only slate. Question six from Gordy Hound says, what's the best comedy movie of the 21st century? It's funny you ask this, Gordy, because I am a uh, sick, sick, and deranged individual. I I can't even say some of the movies that I find funny because I'm sure many of you will be offended. You know, like like a loose, non-offensive example of this, I think, would be Scarface, the Al Pacino classic. Not intended to be a comedy. You know, Brian De Palma. Not intended to be a comedy. But man, I find literally every scene in Scarface so fucking funny. As for actual comedies, though, not unintentional comedies in the 21st century, off the top of my head, Superbad and Knocked Up are incredible, incredible works of art. I'm not even sure we can top it. You know, your face looks like Robin Williams knuckles is one of my favorite lines ever. There's so many, there's so many incredible lines uh, in both. So that's what came to mind for me first. Question seven from Michael Pedersen. He says, when are we getting skin to fur volume two? Oh man, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that skin to fur volume one was a huge success. You know, I, I've made dozens of dollars from it though. And uh, I've humiliated my family with the content. So there's that. I don't think I'll do a volume two. The big thing for me in doing Skin to Fur, the first book, was um, really this podcast. I mean, that's it. I mean, this this solo pod and specifically the listener questions. People seem to like them so much. And I really, really do like doing them. I didn't want the questions and answers to just evaporate into the black hole of the media world, the podcast world, never to be heard from. Again, I kind of wanted to just preserve it for eternity uh, in the form of a seminal novel of our generation, Skin to Fur. So 500 years from now, someone can find Skin to Fur and be like, holy shit, man, this fucking guy, he he caused a global pandemic with his germ avoidance takes. He caused penis size measurements to be added to the NFL combine. He caused NFL teams to start taking quarterback, wide receiver, college combos because the shower narrative, you know, they'll be blown away. So maybe... Maybe I'll write something else one day, but right now, the idea of staring at a blank page with 100 or 200 or 300 pages to go um, makes me depressed. Like, like just the thought of that makes me want to get in bed and never come out. So I think that's a, a sign that um, I'm not prepared to write Skin to Fur Volume 2. All right, question eight. Last question we're going to do today comes from Jordan Sandberg. He says, Adam. Need your honest opinion on the Honda Pilot. Between that and the Subaru Forester for my next car, but waiting a bit for prices to hopefully come down. Hashtag how poor. I have two kids about to turn two. So that seems like the right time to make a move. Yeah. I know I've joked a lot about the Honda Pilot, but I like it. I mean, it's fine. I'm not a car guy at all. It would be difficult for me to care less about anything than cars. You know, I'm just 
looking for something reliable to get me places without any hassle. That's pretty much it. I'm also not very comfortable in nice cars. Like, yeah, it's embarrassing to pull up to the poker game in my Honda Pilot when everyone else has the Lambo and the Mercedes and the Audi, et cetera. You know, it's a little embarrassing, I, I guess. But I'm more embarrassed rolling up somewhere in some ridiculous car, like a Ferrari or something or some 200K Mercedes or some Lambo. Like, you know, who is this asshole? He, he must be an athlete or something. Uh, oh, no, he's not an athlete. Actually, it's the guy who plays fantasy football and tells sex jokes on the internet. You know, I, I really don't like drawing attention to myself uh, in public at all. It makes me super uncomfortable. So, so yes, Jordan, I, I like my Honda Pilot. It's fucking big. It can fit all the kids' shit, the skis, tennis stuff. Goddamn, eight people can fit in there, you know? And look, the bottom line is, Jordan, I had the unprotected intercourse. I did it. You know, I had the unprotected. I'm a grown-ass man. And I made the choice to have unprotected intercourse. As soon as I did that, I knew. I did it consciously. I knew the dominoes would start falling. Some people go into the unprotected with their eyes closed, just not thinking about anything except the moment. I can't do that. You know, I'm, I'm mentally deranged. I can't do that. As soon as I got in there, I immediately thought, my God, I'm having the unprotected. This means leaving the city. This means suburbs. This means fine dining at fucking Chili's. This means spending the weekend at kids' soccer games. This means never being able to do anything spontaneous again. This means driving a fucking Honda Pilot. And that's just how the river runs out when you have the unprotected, man. So don't kid yourself into thinking it's all fun and games. It's not, you know? Be sure you're prepared. All right. That is going to do it for this edition of the Solo Pod. I'll be back later tonight with Silva for the Team by Team Pods, where we will recap everything we saw week five and start looking ahead to week six be sure you are subscribed on youtube and or anywhere else you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss it for jerry for producer luke i'm adam good luck everybody